Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. On May 29th, the church celebrates the feast day of Pope St. Paul VI. On Let Me Be Frank today, Bishop Caggiano will talk about the life of this 20th century saint. We'll also talk about the Second Vatican Council and about Paul VI's prophetic work, Humana Vitae. So keep your radio right here on 1350 AM for today's show and keep it on 1350 AM throughout the whole week. You can also listen live on your phone using the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app. I'll tell you, the app is great because in addition to listening to the live radio, you can also grab podcasts of our local shows anytime. Let Me Be Frank, Restless, The Frontline with Joe and Joe, and The Focus on Veritas. So if you haven't already, make sure you download the app. It's on the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or you can go to www.veritascatholic.com. We are bringing the truth to Connecticut and New York. So when you're tired of listening to noise on the radio, put on Veritas and be fed. All right. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, how are you, my friend? Excellency, I'm doing so well. How are you? I'm doing okay, and, and I hear we did great last week in our fundraiser, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm happy to hear that. We yes. still encourage people to give, though, if you have not already, right? Yes, yep, definitely, definitely. Thank you for that. Um, and the weather's turning nicer. I mean, there's just so oh, much to... the weather's and, magnificent. And you lifted the, uh, the dispensation on the masses... Yeah, let's talk about that, shall we? Can we yeah. open up with that? Of course. Yeah, because that is important news. Um, as many of you probably have already read from the joint letter that the, the bishops, the three ordinaries of the Latin Rite in Connecticut issued last Monday. And then I put together a little video as well, which I would encourage you to watch, if nothing else to critique, but I mean to watch. Um, it, this is a pivotal moment that we now can resume gathering without any onerous restriction. This is after 15 months. So the goal now is to try to keep our places safe, our churches safe, invite everyone back to worship in person, and to attend to those who still cannot come for legitimate reason. Right? And there are legitimate reasons a person could not come, including, God forbid, they're infected with the coronavirus. The last place I would want them to do is come into public. Right? right until it's dealt with so um so anyway um so i'm happy and you know i've been live streaming masses and taping them right but i'm going to cease doing that on pentecost okay because now i want to take i want to be able to go in person to the different parishes to celebrate mass to welcome those who are still not back um, encourage the ones who have come back, and kind of build up the church from the bottom up. Yeah. Right? So I'm looking forward to that. And I think everybody is just looking forward to some semblance of normal routine, right? Yes, I agree. I'm looking forward to not having to register and missing the window yeah. and having it fill up. <laughs> yeah. So that will all end. Thank God. Right. That's, thank God. That's uh, so good. And so cool that it's going to happen on Pentecost. Yes, the birthday of the church. So it's our rebirth. Yeah. Now, what are we going to do with it is the question. Right? You know, in the gospel, Jesus reminds us that we are in the world, but not of the world. Right? So now we are being sent back literally into the world from hibernation, quarantine, isolation, all the rest. Are we going to use this opportunity to show the world our Christian faith and invite people to faith? Or are we just gonna go back to doing what we were doing without giving it a second thought? Right. Now I would argue this is a golden opportunity for us to do this. Yes. It's a golden opportunity to grow an appreciation of the celebration of mass and the sacraments and the fraternity we have and the time we have together and all the things we've, you know, we basically take for granted. Yeah, right? yeah. So. And we did a we did a really good. Um, you did a great episode last year on Pentecost, all about Pentecost. And so, mm -hmm. um, so this this year, as we have Pentecost coming up this Sunday, we're going to look um, just a few days past it 
May 29th is the feast day of Pope St. Paul VI. Yes, it is. A very pivotal figure in the life of the church. Because as many, you know, recall, of course, I remember Pope Paul VI. I remember, right, his funeral. My gosh, if it was as if it was yesterday, right? Hmm. And he died in 1978. But recall, it was John XXIII who, when he assumed the throne of St. Peter, became the Pope at 78 years old, 79 years old, called the Second Vatican Council into session. They had not been an ecumenical council since the Council of Trent. So that's 400 years. <laughs> so talk about daring. Yeah. And at the time, you know, Nicaea had maybe a couple of hundred bishops. At the time, there were over 5,000 bishops. In fact, here at the Catholic Center, there's a beautiful picture, photograph of St. Peter's Basilica in session at the Second Vatican Council. Oh, wow. And for those who have been at St. Peter's, it's the entire length of St. Peter's in banks that were created, must have been 10, 12 deep of bishops, all the bishops of the world. Remarkable sight. In fact, some people claim that we may not have another ecumenical council for a very long time, simply because how the episcopacy has grown, the logistical organization, it would be just a daunting challenge to bring every and then house them, feed them for months. Right? Remember the Vatican Council, it spanned what, four years? Wow. Can can we can you start by before you if I don't know if you're going into Vatican II right now, but before you do that, can you just explain what an ecumenical council is, Excellency? Yeah, an, right. An ecumenical council is the gathering of the bishops of the world. Right? And it is therefore in union with the Holy Father, uh, uh, it has the ability to proclaim, right, to clarify, to teach definitively, authentically, authoritatively for the church. It's the, ex it's the fullest exercise of the magisterium, okay? So you can pronounce infallible teachings. You can clarify what the meaning of infallible teachings are. And in the ordinary magisterium, which is self, all right, is, is without error. It can also be used to clarify pastoral practice that would be consonant with the teaching of the church. So it is, without the Pope, it has no authority actually. But with the Pope, it's the whole college of bishops. See, and if I may just offer a commentary, I think because of social media, because of modern technology and all the rest, you will often hear certain references made to certain bishops who teach certain things. You will hear in the media how bishops seemingly are dis disagreeing with each other in certain issues of life in the church, or doctrinal practice, or pastoral practice. Okay. And while every bishop teaches in his diocese, he only has the authority to teach what the church teaches. And the church speaks with one voice, not with 6,000 voices if there are 6,000 bishops. And an ecumenical council has all 6,000 voices in one room, and then there is a document which speaks for the whole body. So there's tremendous value to have that sort of experience. But absent that, the faithful sometimes are confused when they hear conflicting statements. But that which comes from the Holy Father in the name of all the bishops, right, is, is definitive teaching for the church. So a bishop can certainly teach in his diocese and can offer his opinion on certain things or his understanding of how to apply it, but you always have to understand that that's one bishop teaching but that not necessarily the magisterium teaching. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. So when you hear the bishops who um, disagree with each other on implementation mm -hmm. of certain things or certain teachings, 
they're not speaking necessarily for the church. They can. They what are. They speak- are doing. Yes, tell me. How would you clarify? They're they're giving their opinion, their personal opinion as the shepherd of their area, mm-hmm. but um, it's supposed to be always in line with the church teaching. They can't change anything on their own. Right. I would say this. It's it's more than opinion. What they are doing is they are teaching in their right as a successor of the apostle in their own diocese. And every bishop has the obligation to do that. But that teaching is in dialogue with other bishops and the entire episcopacy that is in dialogue with the Holy Father. Okay. So that in the end, we have to remember that during the parallel with an ecumenical council, there would be interventions at the ecumenical council where bishops would not agree with each other. And they would be heard until there was a consensus or a definitive teaching. When we gather as bishops at the USCCB, please God, in November, we will gather in person. When we gather, there will be disagreements among us. And the point would be, you're heard, there's reflection and discernment, and then there is um, an attempt to teach in such a way that gains the unanimous consent of everyone, reflecting what the church teaches. So now what's different is um, some of that debate is done publicly. Right. Where at the council, it would have been done through, and it would have been public, but it was done in the context of a council's deliberation because everyone knew there would be a definitive statement. Right. That resolves it one way or the other. You see, so the dynamic is different. So in our current environment, it can create confusion or anxiety because it almost seems as if bishops are dueling with each other. In an ecumenical council, they may duel with each other, but there is a definitive resolution. Because it's part of a process in the council. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so when you, when you see bishops who disagree with each other publicly today, um, ultimately they have to be, I guess, obedient then when the Holy Father or the appropriate congregation, CDF or whoever it is, says, nope, this is how it has to be. Is that right? Right. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. And in the end, part of the difficulty in the last year and a half is that we have not been together in person. And it's very difficult to have um, a dialogue on issues of such great importance on Zoom. Right. It's, It's not the same. Yeah. It really is not the same. So... The fact that we are not meeting in June is unfortunate, right? Because we, there are issues we have to clarify, issues that we need to draw to some consensus and then bring to Rome for Rome's blessing so that we are all of one mind because the yes. magisterium needs to teach with one voice. And in the ecumenical councils, it's the Holy Father who is the voice of the council when he approves the documents. And... and the Second Vatican Council, all right, has a dogmatic constitution on the church, which means it's teaching dogmatically who we are yeah. in the church, who we are as we form the church. And then there's pastoral constitutions as well, like Gali yes. Metzpez. Yes. So, so, Paul, the, so Paul, the, Paul the Sixth was given the task of resuming the council after John the Twenty-Third died. Because when the Pope died, the council ended. Basically, a council cannot meet without the Pope. It's impossible. Yeah. So, so the train left the station, and now you have someone else as the conductor. And can you imagine this poor man coming into office, <laughs> trying to, 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 to move this huge process with huge implications that was authored by one and you take up the mantle and try to be faithful to it. I mean, it's a very difficult position to be in. Yeah, yeah. Can we take? Let's take a a, a half a step back and and take a look at the man, Paul the Sixth. Yes, interesting man. A very interesting man. Because my recollection is that Paul the Sixth did not fancy himself to be a brilliant theologian. My recollection, if I remember correctly, is 
that Paul VI only spoke Italian. Hmm. I don't think he spoke, he was not John Paul who spoke like 14 different languages. Right. Right. He was the son of uh, a mother and father, a father who I believe was a lawyer. He was in the Italian parliament, but he was also a member of Catholic Action. Very important because that was the social movement in the church. And you see that in Paul VI's concern for the poor mm. and the marginalized and how the rich, particularly the developed countries, needed to reach out to the, the countries that were poorer and developing. In his address to the United Nations, you will remember, where he said, no more war, right? Because war afflicts all people, but most especially the poor. So he was very socially minded. And I think one could fairly say some of that influence came from his father. Yeah. Right. But he was a career diplomat. He was a career, uh, he spent his entire career um, in, in the service of the Vatican, in the Secretary of State. He was in many ways Pius XII's secretary, even though Pius XII did not have a personal secretary. He would spend half the day in the Secretary of State and half the day attending to the Holy Father and what he needed. So he and Pius XII were very close. Another fact about Paul VI, we now call the Pope the universal pastor of the church. It's a title that has been developed, right? Always has been, but now we speak of it directly, intentionally. And yet, Unless I am mistaken, Paul VI never served as a parish priest. Huh, interesting. Right. So, when people look at his papacy, all his work, to see it through the lens of a man who was trying to guide the church to pastoral reform, but not having had any extensive experience of pastoral ministry, right? It was a very difficult task for him to be given mm -hmm. when John the 23rd died, right? But, and so, people will say that the implementation of the Vatican Council was not faithful always to the spirit of the Vatican Council. And there are varying opinions on that. But you do realize that the divisions we have in the church now, the seeds existed before the Second Vatican Council. And therefore, Paul VI was trying to navigate between different groups to try to hold the church in unity. Right? And he was attacked from all ends. To those who were more conservative, he wasn't conservative enough. Mm -hmm. For those who were very progressive and liberal, he wasn't liberal enough. So for example, all right, when Paul VI, in one of, he has seven encyclicals, and one of his encyclicals where he reaffirmed priestly celibacy, okay, those who thought priestly celibacy was going to be eliminated by the Vatican Council were very disappointed. Okay. We can talk later about Humani Vitae and reaffirmed the church's teachings in that regard. Those who were progressive thought this was like a betrayal. On the other hand, those who were conservative, when he, he allowed the mass to go into the vernacular, they thought this was a you know, the man. So the man was in the middle of <laughs> people attacking him on every end. And yeah. the interesting thing is, people forget, it, of all people, it was Pius XII, okay, who allowed, who began to loosen the, the mandates on the use of Latin and allowed the vernacular in some of the sacraments outside of the mass, way before there was a Vatican Council, right? It was Pius XII who began the reform of the Easter, the Easter sacraments and the Easter Triduum in particular, right? So again, sometimes Paul VI is unfairly seen as a man who forced all of these, all of this change, but in fact, a lot of this was already underway even before there was a Vatican Council. Yeah. And with the Council's teaching, he tried to move things in a way that would hold the church in unity. And quite frankly, the schisms that occurred in the church were very small compared to the schisms that followed some of the other councils that we have had throughout history, including in the patristic era. Right.
right? So, um, so anyway, so what were the goals, right? John spoke of aggiornamento. My mother used to say, God bless my mother, my mother used to say, uh, uh, Pope John Twenty-Third, who they loved, okay? She loved John Twenty-Third. my gosh. She, he opened the window, let some fresh air into the church. <laughs> that was my mother's big thing, spring cleaning, open up the windows. Right. Right, and then some people say that then the typhoon, the hurricane came through <laughs> when the windows were open, right? But the idea was, both for John Twenty-Third and Paul VI, and its implementation of the council, up to John, uh, up to John Paul I, John Paul II, Benedict and Francis, is that the church needs to dialogue with the world. It is not meant to be a fortress. It's not meant to be the enclave. It is meant to be in dialogue with the world because it is in the world, not being of the world, that you bring people the, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Yeah. The impulse is always, we go to them. They do not come to us first. And we have fallen into that in the church, particularly in the United States, where we became this huge institutional behemoth, right? Where, you know, archbishops literally redrew city limits, which is exactly what happened in Philadelphia. Right? with St. With, uh, Charles Borromeo Seminary, where the archbishop wanted the seminary in the city lines of Philadelphia. So he, he single-handedly had the city lines redrawn. <laughs> right? So there was this sense of dialogue. Now, there's always danger when you dialogue. Danger in the sense of if you are not comfortable with your faith, if you don't have a deep abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, it's like trying to swim in the ocean. You can easily have the ocean take you in. So, as I kind of put it, if you want to dialogue with the world, you better know what you're dialoguing about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that did not always happen. It still does not always happen. But the impulse is genuine. So, there was this desire for people to understand the nature of the church. It was this desire to reform the church, to make it more accessible. It was this idea of dialoguing with the world. And there was the desire, still the desire, to heal Christianity. For it is a scandal. There is no way other than to say it is a scandal that Christianity is divided as it is. First with the Great Schism in the 11th century, then with the rise of Protestantism, and now with the tribalism on social media, Christianity continues to fracture. And yet Jesus says, let there be one, Father, as you are one with me and I with you. Now, I'm not Pollyanna. We can't overcome our divisions on a dime. And that's not a question of compromising to come to some sort of mystical union. But the fact that we need in humility to dialogue with all Christians, to bring us to the fullness of the truth, which can never be lost, so that we can become one in Christ, is a noble goal, which we may not realize, but it was one of the goals of the Vatican Council. Yeah. So, so the, the desire for dialogue, the desire for um, reconciling with the Orthodox Church, uh, these are, are are things that people wanted, and is that? Or is, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is why why was why did John the Twenty Third feel like he needed to call the council at that time? Was it because four hundred years had, or, or or however long had gone by, or you know, I he must have seen something. In other I'm words, I'm sure he did. Yes, I'm sure he did. Maybe he was a diplomat, right? He was instrumental in saving many Jewish um, families from extermination in the World War. He had seen the underbelly of human life. And given his scope, he knew that the church needed to invite itself 
to go deeper and to reform itself. You know, again, Pius XII, who wrote Mr. Corpus? Pius XII, and invited people to understand who is this church that we form? What is this church? He spoke of developing this idea of the mystical body of Christ, which comes right from St. Paul. So when the Vatican Council asked the question, who are we? They're not making that question up. It, it was out there before there even was a John the 23rd. <laughs> right. And, and Lumen Gentium, right? A light to the peoples. It says it all. Yeah. That is who we are, right? So, so I think John intuited it. And I think John, at that point in his life, was free. You know, when you get to a certain age, you get to a certain age, the only thing you know is your judgment is coming when you stand before God. And in his conscience, he knew that he had to do something to bring this dialogue and this, this, this to bring the, 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 the scope of the endeavor to ask Catholic Christians to think deeply and profoundly of who we are so that we could be a light to the nations in the world and bring the world to conversion before there was, in his estimation in 1958, a, a, a third world war or another catastrophe. Or the, I mean, the world in the 20th century was a mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially in the 60s. It was a mess. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Okay, so uh, let's, I wanna, we're gonna dive deeper into Vatican II on the other side of the break when we come back. You're listening to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. Hi, I'm Al Cresta, host of Cresta in the Afternoon. I grew up in Connecticut and spent lots of time in New York, but when I return to Connecticut these days, it seems as secular as Portland, Oregon. And of course, New York City is the center of global postmodernism. That's why Veritas Catholic Network is absolutely essential. It's light in darkness. And why I urge you to join me in supporting Veritas by calling 833-88-TRUTH or go to veritascatholic.com. Nowhere will your financial support find greater reward. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank featuring Bishop Frank Caggiano. We are talking about Paul, Saint, Pope St. Saint Paul VI and the Second Vatican Council. Um, and Excellency, I, I kind of wanted to, to ask you, before we dive into the details and, and how the council worked um, and its, its fruits, um, there's a lot of mixed feelings about Vatican II, and I think it's um, it's because of a lot of confusion. And so maybe mm-hmm. I, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of clear it up. Well, let me say this. Um, first and foremost, I think it it is the obligation for all Christians, particularly Catholic Christians, to make it their business to read the decrees and constitutions of the Second Vatican Council. They are primary texts of the magisterium. And I am shocked when I have these spirited debates with people, all right, about the legacy, the meaning, for some people, even the validity of the council, mm-hmm. and they haven't read the document. <laughs> right. But what are you talking about? <laughs> right? Number one. Number two, even for those who have read the documents, okay, the Second Vatican Council, if you believe that the Spirit guides the life of the church, that the Spirit is the guarantor that the church can never err in faith and morals, that those who are chosen to lead the church are chosen through the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit for reasons that you may not understand, for reasons you may not agree with, and for reasons that, quite frankly, God doesn't have to explain to you or me, okay? Then the truth of the matter is, right, the Second Vatican Council is a working of the Holy Spirit, and it is, its teachings are binding, so the first obligation is to learn their teachings first. Yes. And then to seek what they mean. And that is where there can be legitimate discussion, right? And disagreement. 
because like everything else in the church, all right, you look at a diamond, you could see it from different angles. It's still the same diamond, right? It's the same thing here. So when people speak of implementation of the council and the excesses that were done, is that the fault of the council or was that the fault of the priest who had the clown mask or the, or the religious ed who, whatever they did, I have to, whatever. In, in other words, and again, before there was a Vatican council, the second Vatican council, what about the priest who celebrated mass in 16 minutes? Right. Was that the fault of uh, Pius XII? Or was that the fault of the Council of Trent? Right, right. Right? You gotta lay blame where it belongs. And sometimes the protagonist is staring you in the face. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And forgive me for being blunt, but you know, but it is what it is, right? Yeah. Right. So should we have healthy debates? Of course we should on implementation. For no other reason. Because the world is changing so rapidly that we have to also adapt, right? And there was, in many quarters, because of a theological prejudice, there was this idea of going back to the roots, going back to the fonts, going back to the basics. Well, you know what? But, and there's validity in that. But history moves in one direction for a reason. So we could go back to the patristic era but you can't discount everything that happened between the patristic era and the 20th century either because that helped elucidate what the patristic era meant. Yes. Right? So we go back to our roots. You go back to the sum total of our ecclesial experience under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Right? You see, not to offend anyone on the podcast, I hope I don't, but, you know, the world has codified, made its, its credo that I am the standard for truth. I am the standard for morality. I decide what's right and wrong. You can't tell me what to do. And don't even tell me what the facts are because I may choose the facts I want to emphasize to come up with the conclusion I have decided is the truth. Now, we all know that is a recipe for disaster because the truth is objective. The truth is living. The truth is Jesus Christ in his church. The truth is not a function of democracy. But having said that, there are people who could use that same attitude in the church and say, well, I think Notice, it's not we think, I think that that is wrong, or that Pope is wrong, or that document is wrong, or that person and what they're suggesting is wrong. Well, when it's a person and when it's a theological essay, obviously, I have my own opinions. But when it comes to the magisterium, we're in a totally different world. When we start picking and choosing the things we like or don't like because they're not conservative enough, not liberal enough, not progressive enough, not to my liking, we've drunk the Kool-Aid of the secular world. Yes. It's exactly what we've done. And we introduce it into the life of the church as if that is God's work. No, it's not. No, it's not God's work. And I'm sorry if anybody gets offended, but it's the truth. There's a deep humility that's involved in this enterprise, my dear friends. My life, too. That you kneel before the truth, even when you don't understand it, even when it makes you uncomfortable, even if you were in authority, you would choose to do or say something differently. But that's not the point. The Holy Spirit chooses, the Spirit chooses those individuals that the Spirit knows are adding their one piece in the great mosaic that is the Christian experience that helps to unlock, explain the definitive revelation that is the life, death, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus Christ and his mystical body in the world. Does that make sense? Total sense. I mean, yeah, if you're Catholic, you gotta be Catholic. You can't pick and choose. I mean, yeah, I total sense. And that's true. And that is true 
for those who are progressive and those who are conservative. Exactly. It's true for both. Yeah. For both. Yeah. For yep. both. Yeah. You, you know, uh, Paul VI, we talk about the reforms. You know, Paul VI was the one, uh, besides the liturgical reforms, he was the one who created the synod as a permanent office in the church where he gathers bishops, right, of which I was a member, right, for the Synod on Youth, to hear their thoughts because he understood that the Spirit speaks through the body of bishops, not just the head of the bishops, right? Yeah. He reformed the Curia, reorganized it in so many different ways, which he's the one who introduced the age limit for bishops when they introduced right. their retirement and yep. for cardinals and the amount of cardinals who are the cardinal electors. Yes. Right? So he had long, long, he, but again, he worked in the Curia his whole life. So he knew it. And as soon as he entered into office, he knew what to do. Right. Rather than take a long time to, and the other thing that was innovative is Paul VI was the pilgrim pope, they called him. He traveled to all six continents, the first one, in all six continents. He addressed the UN for the first time. He was the first pope to go to Africa reigning pope to go to Africa, right? So in many ways, he was heroic. In many ways, he was, um, he, you know, there's, a, there's a, 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 I forget who said this, but it was about Paul VI, and it said, he may not have been truly holy upon his election, but upon his death, he truly was. And it was the, the sacrifice and the burden, the cross of the papacy in this time that opened that road of suffering for him, which must have been very profound. I mean, think of what was crossing the man's mind when he issued Humane Vitae. When the theological commission that was first established, then it was broadened out to be much larger, mm -hmm. had come up with the recommendation that he in his conscience could not accept. And the firestorm that that would have unleashed, which it did in the United States, in Europe. Imagine the burden that he man, that man carried on the night before he issued it. But he was faithful to what he believed in yeah. his conscience. Right? And people forget that. But we're talking about a human being. Yeah, right. Yep. Mm. So that's probably, besides uh, his, his work um, taking over and, and finishing up the Second Vatican Council, Humanae Vitae is probably his most, the, one of the things he's most famous for. Yeah, I, I think Humanae Vitae and Popolorum Progressio was also. Let's so, start with Popolorum Progressio yes. first. Because it's his social teachings, right? It was issued in March of 1967. And this is where he talks about a just wage, right? The security of employment, a right to fair and reasonable working conditions for workers, the right to have unions, right? The right to strike if that is the last resort. He's lifting up the common man, the working man. In an economy which many times, all right, through the 19th century, before we even got to the 20th century, but even in the 20th century, saw workers being abused and manhandled, right? He lifted up the poor, you know? Theoretically, it sounds wonderful, but received in the halls of industry and business, it didn't go too far. People mm. were not too happy with that sort of teaching because of the true implications that that had. And yet he taught it, faithful to what he knows the church believes. He taught it. Yeah. Right? And the same is true for Humanae Vitae. So, the, so, but the, the work uh, that he produced on the workers, that, I guess, would be building on Rerum Novarum. Yes, of course. And... Yes. And, and it's... And other... It's cyclical. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's an important concept the idea that workers have rights and, and um, employers have responsibilities to those workers. Exactly. Workers are not means to an end. They are the children of God, just like their employers are. 
And they're not means to make other people wealthy. They have a right, a God-given right, to be respected and have the conditions and means necessary where they could be asked to do just work for just wages so that they could raise a family in peace and security. Yes. Right? See, sometimes we forget. We think society says we give you these rights. No. Right. This is the expectation of our Father in heaven, to whom we are all owe our allegiance. Yep. Okay. So he was very clear. And you know, the social teachings of the Catholic Church are its hidden treasure. And we really should do a few podcasts on sure. breaking open that social teaching because yeah. people would be astonished at how the church stands with workers and the poor and the marginalized in so many profound ways, not because we think it's, it's you know, avant-garde, it's because it's the mandate of the gospel. You know what the hidden dynamite of the Second Vatican Council is? If I were to ask you, Steve, what do you think the hidden dynamite of the Second Vatican Council, what would you say? I, I wouldn't be able to guess I, I, I'm, what's right, hidden. for you. <laughs> the universal call to holiness. That has not yet been implemented. Let's implement that and see what happens. And now everything else falls into place. And the only way you implement that is if every person takes it seriously through their baptism. Yes. And what's holiness? It's grace, accepting the grace of God's life and living true charity. Everything else falls into place. Yeah. Then you have a lively faith. You have a genuine hope. You have the missionary discipleship. You have evangelization. You have everything. Yeah. And the Vatican Council taught every baptized Catholic is called to holiness, whether you're a priest, a religious, a deacon, a layperson, whoever it is, young, old, rich, and poor. And that sits in the dogmatic constitution of the church. It sits there, and it's waiting for someone to just put the match on it and blow it up mm. and see what happens. And I'm beginning to sense that it's happening 50-some-odd years later. I'm beginning to meet people, right? And maybe the pandemic is one of the hidden graces who have seen dark hours and given their life to Christ, but they've given it all to Christ. And they are joyful and they, their charity is in, in their aspect of their lives. And we're talking, we're talking mothers and fathers, single people. We're talking the elderly. I'm beginning to see it you know, more and more. Yeah. And I can't tell you the joy and hope it gives me. Yeah. That's what the Vatican Council called for. That's what you and I have to work on together. And, and to be honest, and to be blunt, the liberals and the conservatives and everybody else you wanna call us, if you wanna use that terminology, we could work on that together. Yeah. That would make John the 23rd and Paul the 6th very happy. It, it seems like that and uh, the rights of the workers it, and so much of what we hear, maybe everything we hear from, from the church comes back to this dignity of human life, which kind mm -hmm. of takes us to Humana Vitae, which we could maybe spend a few minutes on. Yes, absolutely. It was issued in 1968 in July. And once again, I'm going to encourage everyone who's listening, to take the time to read the document. Because it's actually not very long. And it is a reaffirmation of the church's teaching on married love, parenthood, and as the consequence, right, the church's rejection of artificial means of contraception that prevents procreation in the marital act. Right. And everyone immediately goes to the conclusion. <laughs> right. 
right? Because we're that kind of people nowadays. Just get me to the get, get, get me the brass tacks. What are we talking yes. about? But but you miss a lot of the reasoning, which much of it is a rearticulation of the church has taught since the fathers of the since Augustine taught it, right? But also there is an insight there that is a profound challenge. Perhaps equally, if not more of a challenge than the challenge of when he talks about, right, not using artificial means to prevent contraception. There's a greater challenge, all right? So what's the image? The image is self-giving in love. Love is a self-emptying for the good of the other. Mm -hmm. That's true of all love. It is especially true of marital love. In marriage, right, a husband and a wife enter into a relationship where they give themselves over to the other. Unfortunately, we live in a time where there are strings attached to that. But for Christian marriage, there are no strings. You give your whole life over, including your body over. Not that it be abused or manipulated by your spouse, not that it be, be reduced to a means of gratification, but that it's the self-emptying, right? So what are the ends of marriage? The ends of marriage are unitive, first and foremost, to enter into a deep, beautiful unity of life where there's always an I, but there's always a we. And we speak of the bridegroom and the bride, Christ and his church. It's exactly what Christ did on Calvary. He gave over everything, including his broken body, for his spouse that he gave birth to, which is us. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful image of what really Christian marriage is meant to be. And I have seen heroic examples of Christian marriage. You know, when I was pastor at St. Dominic's, there was more than one elderly couple that I would visit with Holy Communion and how they would struggle with their own afflictions, their medical conditions, right, in the weight of old age, how they would tend with each other, care for each other, literally hold each other up. So that's the essence of what Paul VI tries to explain. Yeah. And therefore, that unitive life leads to expressions of marriage, including sexual intercourse, which is a natural, beautiful part of married life. And that has an end, too, which is procreation. Because in marriage, you know, it's not two, it's three. Mm -hmm. It's husband, wife, and the God who called them together, unifies them together, sustains them in their life. And when they enter into marriage, and when they have the ability to express that love physically, they may together create, through sperm and egg, a human life. But that life is ensouled by God. So there is a co-creation there, if I could put it that way, hmm. that involves three. Husband, wife, and the God of all things. And therefore, it is that understanding that says that the church has always taught that therefore, if there is a way, right, to choose to stop that procreative end in artificial ways, that the church says that should not be done because it, it decouples what I just described is what marriage has to be. Now, what people forget is, well, not, well, perhaps they don't forget, but some have forgotten that the church allows natural family planning, that there is the very use of the natural cycles to ensure that conception does not occur because there are very legitimate reasons and situations where a couple can't have children. They simply can't. Mm -hmm. And therefore, through conversation and dialogue, through coming to understand the rhythms of their own bodies, right, they can through natural family planning, regulate the size of their family without the use of contraception that's artificial. So one would say, well, 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 but if man created 
these means, why could we not then use them, even though they're artificial? Wouldn't it just be easier? Less tension for a couple. But what people forget is that many of those artificial means are abortive in nature. And therefore, life can be created and then, for example, not, not given the opportunity to either implant itself in a uterus or to have the hormones necessary to continue to develop. And therefore, it is aborted, even if it's microscopic. But for us, that's still human life. Yeah. So one has to ask, what's the consequence of the artificiality and the artificial means as well? So again, like everything else, it's a very complicated issue yeah. that needs thought and reflection and study to understand correctly. Yeah, yeah. That also doesn't allow for that full unitive aspect of, of the act. Correct. Um, Correct. And the other thing too, quite frankly, if I may say, yeah. Paul VI in, in some of his commentary after, outside of Humanae Vitae, but it's even in Humanae Vitae, um, the fear was that there would be a contraceptive mentality. What does that mean? A contraceptive mentality is to decouple the sexual act from the intimacy of a permanent life that the act is meant to express as almost like its culmination. And unfortunately, we live in a world now that may see some of that in living color, where people simply have a sexual relationship without any enduring affective relationship no unitive outside of marriage, as if it was just recreational or self-gratifying, which it's, it is not meant to be that yeah. in the natural order or the supernatural order. And just, I mean, to be honest, think of the teenagers now that are sexually active. Where did that come from? Where do we get this idea that they could have sexual relationship without consequence and without, in fact, the consequence of having the person that you give your body to love you in return? And the damage that's done to our young people when after that act is done two, three, four times, the person just walks away. Yeah. And they're psychologically and spiritually devastated. Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so everything has to be seen in its context. And it still remains controversial to many Catholics. It does. But I'm going to ask everyone to take a step back, go to the primary text, not read it alone, read it in prayer, read it before the Lord, see what is being asked, and then struggle with it if you, don't, if you don't accept it. Struggle with it. What is it the Holy Spirit is challenging me to understand in my own life? Because that's how you and I educate our conscience in the end. Yeah. Yeah. And like you're saying, it's, so, it's still relevant today, Humanae Vitae. And it was actually, I think, beautifully expounded and built upon by uh, John Paul II in his Theology of the Body. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And he took years to, years, okay, um, to expound that. And it's a beautiful theology. And in, in part, it's based on this. And quite frankly, in part, it's based on the whole tradition of the church. Yes. Of which humanity Vitae is just a small part. Right. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. right, Excellency, we've already... You know, oh, go ahead. Well, you, before we go, yes. one thing I have to say. There is one famous quote from Paul VI. Remember? He said that the smoke of Satan entered the temple of God from some fissure. It was quite prophetic. Yes. Because in the end, right, he was reminding all Catholic Christians that the dynamite of the Second Vatican Council, the call to holiness, is the only thing that's going to get the smoke out because Satan is always attempting in every age to infiltrate among believers. You want to get rid of the smoke, open up the windows, 
and let us try in our own way to live holiness as best we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So we we need to take one more break. That that this time has flown by. Um, so we'll be right back with Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Hi, this is Dr. David Anders from EWTN's Call to Communion. Every day, we ask the question, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? People call in from all over the world to share with us their thoughts, their concerns, their questions about the Catholic faith. We try to answer those questions, remove objections and misunderstanding, and the fruit is obvious in the lives of the callers. We get testimonies on a daily, weekly basis of those whose lives have been transformed by first encountering the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church on Catholic Radio. Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 AM, is bringing the truth to Connecticut and New York serving the larger New York City metro area. You can support their ministry by calling 833-888-7884. That's 833-88-TRUTH or VeritasCatholic.com. Remember, Veritas Catholic Network, on the air since August the 21st, 2019. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, uh, here's this week's question. It came in and it says, Dear Excellency, in Mark's gospel, Jesus says we'll see certain signs in his believers. They will drive out demons, speak in tongues, pick up serpents, drink poison, and heal the sick. How are we supposed to read this? I don't see these signs in Christians or in the Catholic Church. Interesting. Okay. I think the key to understand this passage is to understand it in a spiritual context. For physically, these things can happen. I have seen them. I have seen demons driven out of people in the rites of exorcism. I've seen it. So it is real. But most often, it is in the spiritual context. I have seen hearts healed among the sick, even though their bodies remained ill. And I'm sure our person, whoever the person gave the the, uh, question, and others who are listening, have seen the same thing. When we say about speaking in tongues, in Pentecost, people heard the apostles in their own tongue, not because it was an act of wonder and power, but because they were proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ. I have seen that in our church and among Christians who proclaim right, their faith, their witness, the charisma. I've seen people drive out demons even in the spiritual sense. <laughs> I have had the privilege of hearing many confessions. I have seen shoulders relax and faces that were so tense become calm again because the demons have been driven out. I think sometimes we forget that we want to see it only in physical terms, which we may. But in spiritual terms, I think a lot of these prodigies are all around us, precisely in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um... Look closer. <laughs> uh, so Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. If you have a question for the bishop, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. In the meantime, you do have some homework. Read the documents of uh, Vatican II, at least at least the first four main ones, right, Excellency? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and Humana Vitae. Right. Okay. Right. And Pablo and Progressio. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then... they have a lot of homework this week. <laughs> yeah. <Woo! laughs> we'll, we'll, quiz, we'll quiz folks when we come back. Uh, can I ask you to give us your blessing, Excellency? Certainly. Certainly. May the Holy Spirit of God continue to bless you and bless all of our listeners with every good gift. For as we prepare to celebrate the great feast of Pentecost, may the fire of the Holy Spirit grant joy to our hearts, enlightenment to our minds, and strength to our hands to be the disciples of the Lord in the world. 
And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, my friend, I'll see you next week. Yes, awesome, Excellency. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. All the best.